Grace Family Church of Rhode Island presents Word of Hope, a sermon series with Pastor Luciano Cozzi. Good morning, brethren. I wonder what we think, what we think about when we think of Jesus Christ. Do we think of him as a, maybe a great prophet or a great teacher? There are at least seven things, seven major things that God would want us to think about, to, to keep in mind, to ponder as we think of Jesus Christ. The question is, do we know what they are? And even more importantly, is that what we think about? Is that what we keep in mind when we think of Jesus Christ? Let's find out what they are as we continue with our letter, with Paul's letter to the Colossians. We start at chapter 1. We're going to continue beginning with verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself would come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in a faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I do share on my behalf on, on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me from for your benefit, so that I may fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but it has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of his mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Well, there is quite a lot in here. Again, Paul seems to really write with a great deal of depth, and he does. Um, But it is important for us to see 
what Paul has to say about Jesus Christ, it's important to understand, and it's important to understand how we should be looking at Jesus Christ, because I have a feeling that all too often, when we look at Jesus, when we think about Jesus, we think of someone from history, we think of an individual from the past, but we don't really quite think the way we should. Let's look at it in detail, um, beginning again, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The image of the invisible God here, it means the perfect, absolutely perfect manifestation, the perfect representation of God. Jesus Christ was not partly God. Jesus Christ was fully God, perfectly showing and manifesting who God is in the human flesh. In Hebrew chapter 1 and verse 3 is written that he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Well, that's quite something. That is quite something indeed. And God continues here through the Apostle Paul to, to share, to share with us that even though God is not visible, we cannot see God, we have seen Jesus Christ who is the perfect manifestation, the perfect representation of God. But he's also the firstborn of all creation. What does that mean? Well, being the firstborn obviously indicates priority. Priority in, in, term, in time, obviously, because it's the firstborn, but also priority in, in terms of rank, in terms of sovereignty. He's the first and foremost. He is the preeminent one, the most important one, the greatest. And he is the firstborn, the greatest, the sovereign, the preeminent one over all creation. So here we've already seen two of the, the thoughts that God wants us to have about Jesus Christ when we think of Jesus. The first one, that he's the perfect manifestation, the perfect representation of God. And the second one, that he is preeminent, that he is the greatest in all creation, of all creation. Um, but then he continues. He continues in verses 16 and 17. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In a conversation with our assistant pastor, a comment was made that we could take every verse or two of this passage and make a sermon just out of that. But I would like for you to get the feeling of the context as, as well. So briefly... In here we find the third thing that God wants us to think as we, as we think about Jesus Christ. In him, all things were created. Now, if we were talking theology here, we would think of the Father as the efficient cause, the ultimate source of everything, and the Son of a mediating cause, meaning that God created, but created all things through Christ. In him. In him, or by him, all things were created. 
He's the creator of all things. But he's also the sustainer of all things. Not as that. All things have been created through him, and all things have created for him. So Jesus Christ is the very source of all things. He's the creator of all things, but he's also the one who sustains everything and the very reason for which all things exist. Now that's a lot. But before you go even further, all things here means all of creation, the entirety of the universe. Brethren, recently, just a few days ago, we started receiving images from the James Webb Space Telescope. Amazing images. And one of them had a comment that made me think and made me ponder this very point here. They said, they sent a picture and the picture was taken by the James Webb Telescope. And here's the, here's the, the description of that. If you take a, a little grain of sand and you hold it at arm's length, you look at through that, and that little tiny speck of space that they were able to take a picture of, that little grain of sand projected into space, they took a photo of hundreds of galaxies. Brethren, this is mind-boggling. In the space, of a little grain of sand in a deep space photo they saw hundreds of galaxies. That's what all things. And that's just the physical. We can also account for the spiritual. And all things are created by or through Jesus Christ or in Christ. He is the sustainer of all that. And he's the very reason for which all of that exists. Because in him, all things hold together. It's mind-boggling. Verse 18, he is also head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. You know, the one who created all things, the one who sustains all things, the one who is the reason for the very existence of all things, is now represented, is now introduced as the head of the church. He is the one that is so interested in you, in us, to be the head of the church, to to be the one leading, guiding the church. And he made a promise. Then the gates of hell will never prevail over the church. And then nothing would stop his plan. The plan that he is bringing about in the body of Christ, the church. He is the head of a body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. That's the fourth thing that God wants us to understand about that. He is the firstborn among the dead. There is the hope of the resurrection here that Paul is reminding us of. God Almighty has promised that we will have life. 
and life we will have. So that he himself will come to come to first place in everything. Here's the fifth thing that God wants us to think about of Jesus Christ as being the first place in everything. Does he hold the first place in our life? Does he hold the first place in our thoughts? In the reason for which we live? Do we begin, do we begin to grasp the immensity of what God is telling us in here? He continues then, verse 19 and 20. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. It's, it's amazing to see that it was the Father's good pleasure to accomplish all that. You know, sometimes we think of, well, what do I have to do to please God? What, what do I have to do to make sure that, that God pays attention to me? And the answer is nothing really, because He already pays a great deal of attention to you and to all of us. In fact, here, Paul was inspired to write that it is the Father's good pleasure, one, for all the fullness of God to dwell in Jesus Christ. Not, so again, not just partly God, but full, fully God, as well as fully human. And all the fullness of God was dwelling in Him. But it was also the Father's good pleasure through Him to reconcile with God all things, to reconcile all things to Himself. You, I, we are reconciled with God, and that is God's good pleasure. We don't have to coerce God. We don't have to convince Him. We don't have to plead Him. We don't have to jump through any hoops to convince Him to reconcile us with Him, because it is His great good pleasure. And that He accomplished by making peace through the blood of a cross by making himself human and then suffering, hurting, experiencing pain and death on the cross for us. That's how much God loves us, to give us that reconciliation through the cross. Verses, verse 21 and, yeah, verses 21 and 22. And although you were formerly alienated, and hostile in mind, engage in evil deeds. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That is absolutely amazing if you, if you think about it, brethren. God, God is not naive. God is not naive and he's not ignoring who we are or who we have been. Notice that he begins with reminding us who we were. We were formerly alienated, hostile in mind, engaging in evil deeds. God is saying that we are in, in and by ourselves. There's not good in us. We are engaging in evil deeds. But 
He has reconciled us. He has reconciled us in his fleshly body through his incarnation by becoming, making himself human like we are, by connecting us with God in that communion that we have with him because it's only through Christ that we have that oneness with God because Christ is fully God and fully human. Only in Christ we have that connection, that communion with God. And through that, and through the, his willingness to be sacrificed, to go to experience death. Now think about it, even that is just so mind-boggling. The one who created all things, the very source of all life, was willing to experience death for us, for you. In order to present you how? Now notice, how are we? In and by ourselves. Are we worthy? Or are we alienated, hostile in mind? Engaging in evil deeds. But thank God that's no longer who we are. That's our former condition. Because right now, as we are reconciled, by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, He presents you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Do we realize what that means? God Almighty, when He thinks of you, God Almighty, the Creator, the Sustainer of all things, the very reason for the existence of everything, looks at you and presents you to himself holy, blameless, beyond reproach in Christ. And I think about that and my heart just feels like just saying, wow, that is astonishing. It's absolutely amazing. And then he continues in verse 23, If indeed you continue in the, firm, in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Now, if we are not careful in reading carefully what Paul wrote in here, we may be tempted to think, Aha! See, there is a catch. If, yes, there is an if in there, but let's look at what that means. If indeed you continue, he doesn't say if indeed you continue in your works, in the good works. Although our being in Christ produces good fruits, but notice what he says in here. If you continue in the faith, in trusting God, in placing our trust on God and not on ourselves. That's what he's talking about. Trusting God, placing our faith firmly established and, and steadfast and not moved away from any, from the hope of a gospel that you have heard. So what, what does it mean? It means that God is telling us, look, the same message that he's been telling us humanity from creation until today, and they will continue until the end of Revelation. That we are not to trust ourselves, but we're called to trust God. Trust God 
who has a, an amazing plan for you. Don't trust yourself. The best that we can do, it really amounts to nothing compared to that. But God, God is everything. God is everything. And we are invited to continue in the faith, to continue in our trust, to continue to trust God who knows how to do this and who can do all this, not ourselves who have no clue. And so it gives us hope. That hope that comes from the gospel. The gospel which means good news. The gospel that we have heard proclaimed everywhere. Yes, proclaimed everywhere and of which Paul was made a servant. Which, by the way, sets a good example for us. How important is that gospel for us? Let's find out in what, what that meant for Paul in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now... I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Now that word now is not just connecting two thoughts. It's not just a transitional word. Now is actually more important and more meaningful in here because now reflects the fact that Paul writes from prison. While in prison, he rejoices in his suffering for our sake. Paul in prison rejoiced in his suffering because he knew that that would do some good for the church. And in his flesh, he does his share on behalf of the church, of the body of Christ. Now, in the next statement, the next statement is re really not clear to, to any of the scholars. Many thousands of pages has been written in trying to sort out what Paul meant with it, and there is no particular agreement. I'm, I'm not going to go in depth in that, but I will just simply say that when he wrote, filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction does not mean that something was lacking in Jesus. Because elsewhere he repeatedly said that that's not the case. There is nothing lacking in Christ. There is nothing lacking in the sacrifice of Christ. It's quite sufficient. But what is lacking is in our communion and participation in that. It's a concept of inclusion that Paul is, is addressing in here. But in terms of exactly how and what, there is, there is no agreement, uh, no particular agreement among scholars. There are many different possibilities. But what is lacking in Christ's afflictions also is not talking about what is lacking in Christ's sacrifice on the cross because that's not what the word would mean. The word means distress, pressure, trouble. The things that we experience sometimes as ministers of Jesus Christ. The kind of pressure, the kind of distress, the kind of trouble that comes with the ministry. And Paul here is saying is he's filling up what is lacking in the sense of the communion, the participation, the inclusion in that suffering. 
Paul is accepting the suffering of ministry. Paul is accepting here the, the suffering of being imprisoned for the gospel and is accepting it as a participation in the suffering that Jesus Christ has suffered for us. Verse 25 to 27. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I may fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to his saints, to whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, of this church I was made a minister. Again, Paul looks at himself, regards himself as a servant, a servant of God first of all, but also a servant of the church, the body of Christ. So that he could carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is, the gospel. Is the gospel that important for us? Or do we dismiss it as just another story? Hear about Jesus, this great man that walked on this earth and did this and did that, maybe a few miracles and so on, and then that's the end of it? Or do we really grasp the depth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the depth of the gospel of God? The mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generation, but has now been manifested to his sense. So, yeah, Paul is writing about the mystery of the past ages, things that were not understood. It's mystery means refers to the, to the plan of God that has been revealed in Jesus Christ, of which there was no real understanding. God said that he would do certain things, but people did not know prior to Christ. People did not know how he would accomplish them. And I think that Paul uses the term mystery because he's addressing a danger in the church in Colossae, the danger of Gnosticism. Gnosticism being a, a movement or, or a form of religion that leans on on level different levels of knowledge and then the, the the deeper you you the greater knowledge you have the greater level of closeness with God you would have but he's talking to a congregation that is being affected by gnosticism and Paul is writing here to counteract that and as he does that, notice verse 27, to whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of his mystery among the Gentiles. So now he's actually explaining what that mystery is. And that is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And you might say, okay, mystery solved. If we really understood the full depth of the meaning of Christ in us, the hope of glory. So the answer to all the questions that they had, to the questions that even 
the saints in the Old Testament had, trying to understand how God would accomplish His promises, how God would fulfill His promises, the answer is Jesus Christ. The answer is not an event. The answer is, is not something that someone does. The answer is a person. The answer is Jesus Christ Himself. Jesus Christ in you, the hope of glory, the very presence of Christ in us. The communion, that oneness that we were talking about, that inclusion that God has granted us to have in Christ. And that's one reason why Paul is so fond of that preposition, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. He repeats it all through his letters. And Christ in us is the hope of glory. Now there is a reason why in previous messages we talked about that glory and God brings it all together because it is in the, the hope of glory that we have in Christ that promise of glory that God has given us in Christ that resolves what used to be a mystery verse 28 we proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. So because of all that, Paul says we proclaim what? Not a doctrine, not an idea, not a, 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 any belief, but we proclaim Him. We proclaim Jesus Christ because He is the answer. He is the hope. And so we proclaim Christ. We proclaim Christ admonishing every man and teaching every man. How? With all wisdom. With godly wisdom. Not the wisdom of this world, but the wisdom that God has given us to the, to the body of Christ, to the church, through the Holy Spirit. And what is he teaching? He's teaching that every man that he may present, that we may present every man complete in Christ. His teaching that we may be complete, but we may com be complete in Christ. Once again, the fulcrum, once again, the center of it all is Christ himself. So are we learning that? Are we concentrating that? Are we proclaiming Christ? Admonishing and teaching in Christ, because he truly is the answer of it all. He is the creator of all things. He is the sustainer of all things and he is the very reasons, the very reason for our existence and for the existence of all things. And he, he has made you holy, blameless and beyond reproach. God is calling us to trust him because he has a great plan for us and he knows how to bring it about. God bless you. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. What great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. 
And that is what we are. I've heard a thousand stories of one thing. Think you're like, but I've heard the tender whispers of loving. The dead of night, and you tell me that you're pleasing, and I'm never alone. You're a good, good father. for choosing us. Thank you for the plans you have for us and for working all things according to the purpose of your will. As we place our hope in Christ, may our lives be for the praise of your glory. Amen.